Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thank you for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If there's anything at all that we study together on our program today that you'd like to learn more about, then please reach out to our congregation, and we would love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. Just plain, simple Bible truths. So if you've got a Bible handy right now, open up to the book of Job in the Old Testament. That's right before the book of Psalms. And in Job chapter 19... And verse 25, consider with me one of the truly great and powerful verses out of this amazing book. In Job 19, verse 25, it says, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Now, before we get into that verse, we'll introduce our program with this thought. The problem of pain is a problem of universal concern. Pain and suffering touch everybody sooner or later. And the problem of pain is more than just some philosophical question. When suffering enters our lives, we cry out for relief. We beg for an answer, for an explanation of some kind. Why are we suffering? What's the purpose behind it? What's the ultimate meaning behind it? Did I do something wrong? Did I do something to warrant this punishment? Maybe, what could I have done differently to prevent it? Whether it's the tragic death of a child, or losing your career, a house burning down, or an illness that you don't have a whole lot of hope of recovering from. No matter what it is, these and other horrible things, other hardships can can rip our lives apart. They can destroy us, tear us down. And when they do, it's not like we get to have some personal explanation from God. He's not just going to call us on the phone or shoot us an email and say, hey, that thing you're going through right now, this is its ultimate purpose, or this is where it's going. Or 10 years from now, you'll look back on it and be grateful that you went through all of it because it produced something good in your life. We don't get to have that personal explanation from God. So, faced with the agony... More than a few people leave their faith. After all, how can a God who claims to be so good, or at least that we claim is good, possibly exist if all of these atrocities are allowed to happen to me? And there is no book in the Bible that speaks to unexplained suffering any more than the book of Job. And there's probably no other verse in the book of Job that speaks to the issue more powerfully than the context of Job chapter 19. Now let's read a few verses here. I know we've already read verse 25, the primary text for the day, but let's let's expand it out to its greater context. 
We're told back in Job chapter 1 that Job was a blameless, upright, God-fearing person who turned his heart away from evil. He had a lot of wealth. He had a healthy family. He had everything that you would consider to accompany a comfortable life in his time period. But in an exchange that is both incredibly revealing and oddly mystifying, Satan challenges God about Job. Satan believes that Job is only good, that Job only honors God because he has stuff, because he has health, physical health, and his children are healthy, and he has possessions and incredible wealth, because God has created a hedge around him, a a safety net around him, then obviously Job is going to believe in God and be faithful to him. But if God takes all the stuff away, if he takes all the stuff away, Job would deny God in a heartbeat. That's Satan's challenge. And so God gives Satan permission to do with Job as he sees fit, except you can't kill him. So as we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we find out just how far Satan was willing to take that or how far he was very excited to take that. Job loses his family. He loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions. He even loses his physical health to the point that he becomes sickly and covered in oozing boils. At the very sight of him, Job's wife tells him, Why not deny God? Why are you putting up with this? Why do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, she says in chapter 2 and verse 9. But how could Job do that? How could Job curse God and die? God had given him all of the great blessings of his life, his earthly possessions and his physical health. So why would it be unfair for God to take those very same things back? Job goes on to say specifically in verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So as we go on through the book then, three friends of Job's come to him. And these three friends at first sit quietly with him and just endure the pain and suffering with him. They're sympathizing, but eventually they can't take it any longer. They, they get tired of just sitting silently while Job is trying to mentally and spiritually and emotionally process everything that's happened to him. So they decide to speak up. And what they say is rather unhelpful. Perhaps the worst thing that you could tell somebody in the midst of a time of grief and suffering. The three friends suggest that all of this has come upon Job because of some forgotten or unseen or unresolved sin in his life. That surely, if God is that good, then God wouldn't allow all these bad things to happen to a good person. If God is really that good, none of this would have happened to you, Job. So, since God is good, and we're not going to deny that, you must be the one who has the problem. Job you must be the one who is evil. What they're trying to do is square away or come up with a solution or an answer to this very age-old question. Why does God allow good people to suffer? And to them, the answer is simple. God doesn't allow good people to suffer. He doesn't allow it. So the fact that Job is suffering is not an indication of some problem on God's end but it's an indication that Job must be evil. 
So we get to chapter 19, and in verse 2 it says, and this is Job speaking in response to his three friends, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you've insulted me. You're not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Now, that's one side of it there. And I suppose if it was true that God was punishing Job for some sin of his, then, then yeah, it would also be true that you could put the blame on God. You could say, well, God is very rightly and justifiably punishing an evildoer for his evil. That's what Job means there. God is the one who has ensnared me. God is the one who has punished me. It's not your job to punish or to judge me. It's God's job to do that. But then we go down to verse 23, okay? Verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall, shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him, and what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid. Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is judgment." So I think if you could put it into modern words, what Job is saying is that I'm not a perfect man, but I am a godly person. He knew himself to be the kind of person who he was described as being back in chapter 1 and verse 1, blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In a court of law, maybe Job would have put it as, I, Job, do solemnly swear that I have committed no such transgression as to warrant the catastrophe that has befallen me. Job didn't know what the reason was for his suffering, but he knew one thing that it was not, and that was the sinfulness that his friends were falsely attributing to him. Under their onslaught, Job had stood his ground. He'd steadfastly defended his integrity. His friends were being unfair, even cruel to a point. And he's saying, have pity on me. Have pity on me because the hand of God has struck me. So why do you persecute me the same way that God does? Why are you not satisfied seeing the way that I'm suffering right now? So at this point in the book of Job, Job's argument was something like this. I'm suffering horribly. God, who could at least have kept this from happening, is ultimately responsible, but I don't know why he has chosen for me to suffer so much. I see nothing about this situation that would make it anything less than an injustice, and my friends, who should be standing by me, suddenly are standing against me. That was Job's plea in the middle of his ordeal. He wanted understanding from his friends. He acknowledged the worthiness of God in all things. He acknowledged that God was just, and God was righteous, and God was good, and also, as our text says in verse 25, that God was a redeemer. And in spite of all the things that he had suffered at this point, he was unwavering in his belief that ultimately, ultimately, God would redeem him from the things that he was enduring. 
Now let's stop and take a few minutes to think about what the word redeemer really means. I mean, it's a word that we throw around a lot, especially in religious circles, but do we really know what the background behind a redeemer is? It comes from a Hebrew word that, honestly, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce, so we'll just say redeemer. But it can be translated as avenger, vindicator, defender, or deliverer. The primary use of a redeemer in the Old Testament had to do with family law. The term more often than not referred to the duty of a relative to protect and defend the rights of a family member of his who was in some kind of a trouble. If a person had to sell himself into slavery or servitude to pay off his debts, a near relative could redeem him from that. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 47 through 49. If a person had to sell his property to pay his debts, his closest relative was to be given the first opportunity to buy the land and keep it in the family. That's Leviticus 25, 25. And you see an example of that actually in the story of Ruth in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where a very close relative was given first shot at a piece of land ahead of Boaz, the character in the story. The most dramatic case, of course, involved murder where a kinsman avenged a wrongful death by killing the one who was guilty of that murder. Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 34. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. Both of those passages help explain what that law was uh, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But a Redeemer could also be used of God. It wasn't just limited to some legal practice that they were supposed to have or some custom they were supposed to keep or a human being who could come and redeem you from a difficult situation or from a debt of some kind. It could also be used of God. In Isaiah 49 verse 26, God said to his people, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 33 and 34, this hope was given to those who were facing captivity in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah, All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. But probably the nearest parallel to Job 19.25 is Psalm 19 verse 14, where the writer David prayed this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So when you look at all these passages, the common idea is that of deliverance from trouble, being rescued, set free from a bondage of some kind. Now, sometimes the Redeemer was an earthly kinsman. Sometimes it's God. Sometimes a price had to be paid and sometimes it didn't. But the essential idea is that a redeemer comes to the aid of a loved one and solves the particular problem that has arisen. And here in Job 19, Job is saying, I still believe in my redeemer. I've lost everything. All of my possessions and my wealth. I've lost my children. My wife can't stand me. 
and I've even lost my physical health. The only thing I have left is my breath, the breath passing between my lips and sustaining my physical life. And with that breath, Job is saying, I still believe in my Redeemer. But here's the trouble we have to deal with. Job does acknowledge that at its root, all of his suffering must have to do with God somehow. That, that God must have brought some of this on him, or at least that God allowed these things to happen to him. God either caused it or stood on the sidelines while it was happening. So how is it possible that God could cause these things, yet Job still regards him as his redeemer? having laid the responsibility for his suffering at God's feet. And we read that in chapter 19, verses 1 through 22, all of the text leading up to our text for the day. What sense does it make for Job to look to the same God for his ultimate vindication? And here, I believe, is an area where we have something to learn from Job about the meaning of honesty and real faith. First of all, two points here. First of all, real faith is neither blind faith nor wishful thinking. It is based on solid evidence. Job's confidence in God was founded on the past words and deeds by which God had proven his trustworthiness. He looked to precedent to prove what he knew to be true about God, not only in Job's own personal past, but in the entire past of human history. At the end of the book, Job will say to God that prior to all this suffering, he had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That's chapter 42, verse 5. So his faith in God was based on the testimony of witnesses to God's past words and deeds. He knew who God was based on what God did. But second, with such a faith based in reliable testimony and witness, Job could look beyond the confusing circumstances of right now and see his life from a bigger picture point of view. And, and that's a great point, that we don't always understand why we're suffering right now because we're suffering right now. The very fact that we're suffering kind of blinds us to the logic and the reason and the perspective that we need to have to see the big picture. We are most occupied with what we're facing at the moment. Uh, and I'll give you just a good example here, just basic survival instincts, right? If your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, what's your primary concern? Is your primary concern going to be, uh-oh, I forgot to turn the lights off back at home? That's not really what you're worried about right now. Your primary concern is, do I have water? Well, here in Arizona, at least, where it's 110 degrees all the time. But do I have water? Is my cell phone battery charged? Can I call for help? Do I have a flat tire and the means to repair it or replace it somehow? Those are your main concerns. And you're not thinking about some project that's due next week at your job. You're not worried about whether it's a new episode or a rerun of your favorite program tonight on TV. You are worried about the thing right now that's facing you. So while we're suffering, we become quite naturally preoccupied with that suffering, distracted by it, even consumed by it. And we don't always have the logic at our disposal. We don't always have a cool head about things. We don't always have the perspective to calm down and say, okay, so I'm suffering right now. The here and now hurts, but all of this is part of a bigger picture. Maybe another way of explaining it is this. At night, there is no 
immediate compelling evidence that something like daylight exists. But it would be a fool who quit believing in daylight just because there was no evidence of daylight at nighttime. When it's dark, an unbeliever might say, where is the evidence now that daylight exists? And a believer would have no answer to that question, at least at the moment. But what about past evidence? Past evidence doesn't suddenly cease to exist when a moment arrives containing questions that we can't answer right then and there. So in the nighttime, maybe the believer in daylight can't point to something that's all around them right then and right there and say, but see, this is what daylight is, or here's daylight, or let me explain it like this. All they can do is say, well, every day there's daylight, and at some point that daylight ceases to be and it becomes nighttime. And eventually, every single night, the night gives way to daylight again. All I can do is look to precedent. All I can do is look to the past. And so it is with Job. At the moment, Job has no explanation. He doesn't know why he's suffering. He doesn't know why he's hurting. He doesn't know why God has either allowed or caused all of these things to happen to him. But he's so confident in God's past of God's past righteousness, of God's past trustworthiness, of God's past goodness and mercy and loving kindness. He's so confident in how God has always shown himself to be in the past that he believes that eventually God will show that same quality to Job in the future. Job declared his faith in God as his Redeemer at a time when he was anguished and uncertain about many things. Yet his honesty proved to be his salvation. He was too honest to renege on what he knew about God. He hadn't a clue why he'd been hurt so badly right now, but he was certain that there will be an ultimate vindication of goodness and truth. As to the specifics, he knew fewer of the details than we do with our fuller revelation of God. But whatever details he may not have understood, Job had a vice grip on one thing. God was God, And God would do what was right, sooner or later. That's what he means here in the second half of the verse. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. My friends, I I don't always understand what God is up to behind the scenes. I don't understand always why he allows certain things to happen or causes certain things to happen. But at the last, he will take his stand. And that might take a long time, too. At the last might be... At the last of your life. At the last might mean at the last of time, when all is finally said and done. You know, while we're in the midst of this life, we just, we don't always have the luxury of knowing exactly how things are going to turn out. And it might take until you get to heaven to see the fuller revelation. And it might take until you get to heaven to finally see the reward of the choices that you've made and the mercy that's been shown to you. Okay, we might go through life and we might never see a physical reward for doing what is right. In fact, in the gospel, Jesus actually promises the opposite. He talks about persecution in the Beatitudes, how blessed are you when men persecute you and cast insults at you. For my name's sake, even when you've done nothing wrong, you are harmed and insulted just for being right, for believing. So it all goes back to perspective, doesn't it? I have to realize that my reward isn't here, that my treasure can't be laid up 
on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I have to lay up treasures in heaven and understand that I'll finally see that reward, not in this life, but in the next one. Now, if you're not a Christian, you really ought to be. You need to consider the words of the gospel, as Jesus says in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. And if you're curious about this, or if you'd like to know more, if you'd like to learn more about what it means to be a Christian, and what it means to have the same kind of faith as Job, the same kind of confidence in God's ultimate power to redeem us from our earthly troubles and to redeem us from our sins, then please reach out to Monte Vista and let's study these things together so that you might know the truth of salvation. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street, We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.